So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, it was the uh, 4th of January, a very cold day. For Pietro Poletti, it was a day decades in the making. My name is Pietro Paletti. I'm an ex-lieutenant detective of uh, Montreal Police Department for close to 30 years. In all, I have 35 years of uh, law enforcement. Pietro was an organized crime investigator. He's stone-faced, serious, and the very image of a cop. And on that day, he was about to make the biggest arrest of his life. Pietro and his partner Nick Milano pulled up to a house in an outer borough of Montreal, the street was lined with beautiful homes, but it wouldn't have looked out of place in any wealthy suburb in Canada. But to people in the know, it had a nickname. Mafia Row. Up and down the street were the homes of Canada's most notorious mob dynasty, the Rizzutos. And the home that they were interested in that day was the residence of the head of the Montreal Mafia, the home of the Teflon Don himself, Vito Rizzuto. I mean, it wasn't a bunker-style house. It was just, a, if, you know, if the layman drove by, he would never think it's the head of the mob living there. There's no uh, huge fence or anything or alarm systems. No, it was just a family in the suburbs. Pietro and his partner got out of their car and walked up to the house. Up the street, a few uniformed police officers waited in their cars, but for such a big arrest, there was little fanfare. We had one one patrol car only just to show the, the... We had followed him all night. We had been on him for a couple of months. So we knew that he was there and uh, uh, with his wife only. At 6.15 a.m., they rang the doorbell. Immediately, he had recognized me. He knew who I was. 
Vito's wife Giovanna answered the door, but Vito was soon there, wearing a bathrobe over his pajamas. And I said, I'm here to execute a warrant with my partner, Nick Milano. Pietro and Vito had gotten to know each other over the years. It was always very cordial. It was yes sir, no sir, on both sides mutual. If you show them respect, they'll show you the respect. And even as they told him that he was being arrested in connection with a triple murder, Vito Rizzuto was still respectful. He was very welcoming. He, he welcomed and the first thing he said and uh, called his wife, says, Joanne, make Pietro coffee. Pietro went up to Vito's room with him to let him get dressed into a beige turtleneck. He didn't take it very seriously to warrant. He stated that he had spoken to his lawyer and that was nothing. I said, you know, it's, uh, it's serious now. You got to come in. Uh, we placed him under arrest. The whole thing took 15 minutes. The Teflon Don, Canada's most powerful and famous mafiosa, a man who people thought was untouchable, was going to prison. Pietro, his partner, and Vito drove down to the police station, and it was pandemonium outside. The arrest might have gone as quietly as it could have, but it looked like every TV camera in the city was waiting outside. They went in and headed to the interrogation room. We spent about an hour together, and after interrogation a bit more, he, he had mentioned that we wouldn't have problems in the future. He goes, uh, you put me away, you'll see what happens. Without him there to run things, Vito expected Montreal to spiral into violence. But he had another message for Pietro. He told him to watch his back. There was corruption in the Montreal police force, and they'd be coming for him. It wasn't a threat. It was a warning. That day would change everything for both Vito and Pietro, for the Mafia Don and the cop who arrested him. Over the next decade, both of them would lose everything that they valued the most. The Rizzutos are Canada's first family of crime. For the last few decades, they have dominated Montreal's underworld. Everything from drug trafficking to extortion to gambling to construction and corruption all of it was the domain of the Rizzuto clan. Niccolo the father started the dynasty, but it was his son, Vito Rizzuto, who had come to be known throughout Canada as the Teflon Don. With the help of corrupt politicians and police officers, Rizzuto built one of the most fearsome and lucrative criminal enterprises this country has ever seen. The rise and reign of the Rizzutos was long and bloody, but their fall was even more gruesome. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. For decades, Vito Rizzuto was the most powerful mafiosa in the country. And in essence, what that means is respect. Everyone respects you, not just because you're rich or dangerous, but because when you have a problem, Vito is the guy who can fix it for you. Do you have a gambling debt that needs to be taken care of? Vito can take it off your back for a price. Two gangs engaging in a bloody feud? Well, Vito can mediate. Need zoning changes or permits to go through for your big construction project? Call Vito. Take what happened to Montreal businessman Terry Pomerantz in 2003. Vito was a silent partner with Terry on a massive condo project. But one day, just after midnight, Terry's brand new Cadillac was stolen. He didn't actually care about the car, but there was a briefcase in the back that he absolutely needed to get a hold of. 
so he called the one man he knew could get it back, Vito Rizzuto. Police wiretaps picked up the call. Hello? Yeah. Yeah, Vito? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, Terry. How you doing? Very good, Terry. How are you? All right. Uh, Vito, I'm sorry to bother you at this time. No, no bother at all, my friend. I was just at the Il Grappa restaurant, and about an hour and a half ago, my yeah. truck was stolen. Yeah? They uh, took my truck, and inside I had my briefcase, which was very important to me. Really? Yeah, and I was wondering if there's any way, is there any way of tracking uh, or knowing what happened? Okay, give me the, give me the, give me the truck name and everything. It's the Cadillac Escalade. Cadillac? The Cadillac, the Escalade? Intelac. Yeah, the, the Escalade, the briefcase that's inside oh. of there. I need that briefcase. It's okay. driving me nuts. Well, uh... Let me see what I can do. Uh... Vito got a hold of the Cadillac in just 12 hours. But the briefcase wasn't inside, so he sent his men to hit the streets once more. Dominic speaking. Hey, is the tall guy there? Yeah. Yeah? You want to speak to him? Yeah. Hello? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what's up? The briefcase is not there. It's not there? No, the briefcase is missing with all the papers and everything. Okay. I'm going to call again. But he told me this morning it wasn't there, the guy. That's what he was telling me. Yeah, uh, but all you got to do is he's going to ask the guy who, who brought him the thing there. Huh? Okay. To bring him back. He told him that it's important that thing comes back yeah, and okay. to go investigate. Okay. All right. Eventually, Vito did locate the briefcase, and he gave the car thief $3,500 just for helping out. And what did Vito get in return? Well, solving these kinds of problems is why he got $1.7 million from his silent partnership on the condo deal. Vito was on good terms with everybody, from the politicians, construction bosses, and union officials, to the West End gang, the Hells Angels, the Haitian gangs. Everyone respected him. When the Quebec biker war was raging in the early 2000s, hundreds of people dying in the streets, firebombs tearing through Montreal, it was Vito who was able to bring the two sides together for a brief truce. Quote, I'm a mediator, Vito once said. People come to me to solve disputes because they believe in me. They have respect in me. Even the police officers who were trying to take him down respected him in their own way. Here's Pietro Pauletti again. I had met him uh, dozens of times. He was flamboyant. I remember in the early 80s, he, he got himself a Tessarosa Ferrari, and that didn't last too long. He was very flamboyant. He was an individual that was seen in nightclubs, restaurants. He was very charismatic, no doubt. He could sit at the table with anybody. He was a well-respected man. He knew my role, and he knew his role. So the conversations were about nothing and everything. But the message got across. If we uh, didn't like or had problems with some of his uh, hangarounds or friends or associates, we made that, we got that message clear. And he always followed through. He didn't want really uh, trouble with the law. So how did this one man, Vito Rizzuto, become such a powerful, respected figure? It all started when his father, Niccolo Rizzuto, came to Montreal in 1954. Niccolo was born in a small village in Sicily where the Mafia's roots go back centuries. Niccolo's father, Vito Sr., was a small-time mafiosa himself. He was murdered when Niccolo was nine. 
When Niccolo moved to Montreal in 1954 with his wife, Vito Jr., and his daughter Maria, he quickly got a crew together and started hustling. He started out as a cement contractor. Within a decade, he had multiple construction companies that were getting shady contracts. He was involved in heroin distribution and a number of other illegal businesses. And he cultivated deep ties to the New York Cosa Nostra, especially the Bonanno family, who saw Canada as part of their territory. Niccolo was soft-spoken, but he soon became a man who commanded fear and respect. Here's Toronto Star mob reporter Peter Edwards. He wasn't someone who shouted. He's someone who, when he got more serious, his voice would go softer. It's your job to listen. And people who didn't agree with him, a lot of them um, had had bad endings. And so he, you know, physically wasn't wasn't all that much, but very strong brain, very good at reading people, and totally comfortable in his own skin. Like this wasn't someone who was wracked by guilt about what he did. He just took it as he's part of the governing class, and this is how you govern. The turning point for Nicola Rizzuto came in the 1970s when he got into a feud with one of the most powerful mobsters in Canada, Paolo Violi. Violi was promoted above Niccolo, which incensed him. In return, Niccolo insulted and disrespected Violi so much that Violi got permission to put a hit out on Niccolo. Niccolo Rizzuto got wind of that and fled to Venezuela. And while he was gone, the Violis very conveniently started going down one by one. Paolo Violi was killed with a shotgun at a card game, and his brother, Rocco Violi, who wasn't even involved in the mob, was shot with a hunting rifle, a sign of total disrespect. Niccolo was back in Canada by the 1980s, and with the Violis out of the way, the Rizzutos now sat atop the criminal pyramid. And their prized possession, what made them so powerful, was control of the port of Montreal. I don't know if you've ever been to the port of Montreal. It's huge. I mean, we're talking millions of containers from Montreal to Three Rivers. The Rizzutos formed an alliance with the Irish West End Gang and the Hells Angels to control the port, which became one of the biggest pipelines for cocaine into the United States. I think with Montreal, the key thing to remember is it's really close to New York City. The cocaine came in the 80s, and this is where the Rizzutos had. They took over. Their empire came through cocaine. And Niccolo started to take a back seat. He promoted his son Vito Rizzuto as the head of the organization. It's rare that succession is handled so smoothly in the world of the mob. Vito had already proven himself to be a solid guy. He'd only been convicted once in 1972 for arson, alongside his close friend and associate, Reynald Desjardins. And in 1981, Vito was one of the gunmen who killed three Bonanno captains in New York at the behest of the boss of the Bonanno family. It's one of the most infamous hits in mafia history, and it's literally depicted in the movie Donnie Brasco. They had a rebellion inside the family. They wanted to dealt with killing um, these captains who were rising up. Vito was one of the people brought in for it, and Vito was actually in a... Um, in a closet, sort of peeking through, and when, when one guy ran his hands through his hair, then that was Vito's signal to come out shooting. Vito was more professional than his father, and he was in the good graces with the people that mattered in New York. Under Vito, the empire continued to grow. Extortion, entertainment, gambling, construction, and corruption on top of the drugs. I guess if you looked at Niccolo, he'd be like the smartest guy in the village. Vito would be like the CEO. Vito was primarily interested in making money, his favorite place to do business was on the golf course. By the 1990s, Vito was the undisputed boss, respected by all, whether criminal or legitimate. 
and the police didn't seem to be able to put a dent in his operation. It was then that he got the nickname, the Teflon Don. But the good times for Vito couldn't last forever. Since he was a kid, Pietro Pauletti knew he wanted to be a police officer, and he knew exactly who he wanted to investigate. I experienced events with organized crime. I, I've seen individuals, and before working as a police officer, I worked in Italian restaurants, reception halls. So I knew these characters, and my passion came about, you know, to work when, when I joined the police department, to work organized crime, basically to dismantle the, the plague in society. Because Pauletti grew up around organized crime, he was more comfortable than some of his French-Canadian colleagues just approaching and talking directly to the mobsters. As a patrol officer, I got to know these individuals. It's not as a detective. My knowledge came from uh, day one. I would uh, have interest and I would intercept them, uh, question them. What scares people is the unknown. And for me, there were uh, Italians coming from the same background. I understood the culture, so I knew how to approach them. Pietro became a high-ranking detective and worked massive investigations. He was called on to help with organized crime prosecutions all over the world, and he became considered an expert on the mafia. By the way, he's exactly what you're picturing him as. He's grizzled and a bit grim. The kind of police officer who insists publicly that he bleeds blue. Pietro, along with many other organized crime detectives, had their sights on the Rizzuto organization for years. But it goes without saying that hunting the mafia is dangerous work. And Pietro? He was about to find that out firsthand. One day, Pietro's mother gets a package in the mail. It was a funeral wreath with her son's name on it. The message was clear. Pietro better watch his back or he'd end up dead. Pietro and his bosses needed to know who the threat had come from, so they went to the one man sure to know. Vito Rizzuto himself. My superiors, we had met with Vito Rizzuto. And he called in everybody. He made sure he canceled the trip, actually, to Toronto. He was coming to Toronto one day, that particular day. And we phoned him. We phoned his lawyer. And he, we organized a meeting at the lawyer's office with my superiors, and we spoke to him. He organized a meeting the following day or following few days. Uh, he called all his, his street hoods, or we call them his members, his affiliates, and he asked the question who sent him a reef. Vito wasn't able to determine who had sent Pietro's mother that very ominous funeral wreath. But he promised to keep looking into it. And in the meantime, events were turning against the man who he had turned to for help. An informant within New York's Bonanno family provided evidence that Vito had been personally involved in that 1981 shooting of three mob captains. The feds had even arrested and flipped Joe Messino, the head of the Bonanno family itself. Vito was destined for prison in the United States. And on that cold January morning in 2004, Pietro and his partner showed up at Vito's door, had a cup of coffee, and took Vito Rizzuto down to the station. While they interrogated Vito, he had a number of things to tell the officers. First, the streets of Montreal would be bloody without his cooling influence there. He told Pietro that the Montreal Police Department was dirty and that Pietro would have a target on his back. But Pietro had one question above all that he hoped Vito would be able to answer. Did he ever find out who had sent that funeral wreath with Pietro's name on it to his mother? 
where I brought up the same question. I said, Mr. Rizzuto, remember that incident where my mother received the reef at home? He goes, it was one of your men that sent it to make the wires talk. Pietro was reeling. Vito was saying that the threat on his life hadn't come from anyone in the mafia. It had come from another police officer. I didn't want to believe it at the time because, uh, you know, I, uh, people don't know me. I have blue blood. I, I'm a policeman at a heart and uh, like uh, many others. I didn't want to believe it when your own kind is dirty. But something snapped into place for Pietro. The investigation around the threat had always seemed a little off to him. The official investigation went nowhere. And I found it always strange. They gave it to a, a junior detective right there and knew something was wrong. It was an awakening. I said, hold on a minute. He knows what he's talking about. Vito seemed to know everything that was happening in the Montreal Police Department better than Pietro himself. So he knew exactly, exactly what we had covered. He knew. He was very, very well informed. That day marked a turning point for both Pietro and Vito. For Pietro, it was an end of a kind of innocence. Over the next few years, it wasn't the mafia that was after him. It was his fellow officers in the Montreal Police Department. It's like playing soccer, one fellow against ten. They made my life miserable. So they tried to accuse me of everything. Best defense is offense. Uh, They just made my life totally miserable. His investigations were stonewalled. My bosses, my superiors, they always kept putting barriers You can't see this person, you can't do this investigation. Let's say, why? Eventually, the Internal Affairs Department tried to frame Pietro. They falsely claimed that his father had taken mob money for some condos he purchased in the 1960s. The police were making his life hell. So one day, he decided to finally blow the whistle and tell the world that honest cops were being shuffled off of investigations so that they would die on the vine. We uncovered a well-systematic scheme where the buddy system existed, institutionalized patronism. The politicians would say, listen, Pietro, you got to move him. People promoting or financing political parties would say, you know, get rid of him. Give him a promotion. Do what you want. He's got to be out of our way. And the internal affairs cop who had tried to frame him admitted that he lied in his report on the command of a senior officer. We have police officers in Montreal that we exposed that were participated or directly or indirectly in murder cases. Reports have disappeared. Firearms have disappeared. Questionable cases, nothing. uh, And we're talking serious crimes, not nickel and dime canceling a parking ticket. We're talking murder cases, drug importations, false arrests. The Montreal police didn't respond to our request for comment. In the years since, numerous government and media reports have uncovered deep, systemic corruption within the Montreal Police Department, and a number of mafia moles have been outed. And it was that kind of corruption that allowed organized crime to flourish in the first place. Since 1970 till today, there's probably been 400 homicides related to traditional organized crime. Solution rate is less than 1%. It's either the police, uh, the departments are incompetent or they're really good. The years since he arrested Vito have been hard on Pietro. But for Vito, his next decade was even more savage. He was convicted in connection with those triple murders and went off to a Colorado prison, about as far from Montreal as he could get. Vito had prophesied that there would be no peace in Montreal without him. 
But before that prophecy could be fulfilled, the Rizzutos hit their biggest setback yet. It was a joint operation by the RCMP, Montreal and Quebec Provincial Police Forces, known as the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit. One morning in June 2003, they turned on the microphones and cameras at the Consensus Social Club and began to listen and watch. The police had wiretaps in the headquarters of the Rizzuto operation. You had the hiccups this morning? Yeah. Hiccups? Yeah. I always get them before they go past. You do? I haven't had them since the 17th. Anyways, you know, it's like you and me were running the Central Bank of Canada now. While Vito was in prison, his father, Niccolo, the old man, had stepped up, and the police were watching his every move. Wiretaps and hidden cameras caught Niccolo conducting the everyday business of his criminal empire and found him stuffing thousands of dollars in cash into his socks every week. There's actually videotape of this online, so if you want to watch a cold-blooded killer stuffing money into his oversized socks, today's your lucky day. The RCMP had been trying to get inside the Rizzuto operation for years. There had been Project Nej, Bedside, Circe, Battleship, Omerta, Jaggy, Compote, Cicerone slash RIP, Calamus, Chile, Cortez. But in 2006, the cops finally struck gold. Project Colise, or Coliseum in English, was the most expansive RCMP investigation in history. Today we announce a major police operation targeting traditional Italian organized crime. A total of 90 searches are underway this morning in the Montreal area, and more than 700 police officers are taking part in this major operation. Over 80 Rizzuto-aligned mobsters were arrested, including Niccolo Rizzuto himself, Paolo Renda, Vito's brother-in-law, and a number of the people at the top of the organization. Niccolo Rizzuto went to prison, but life wasn't actually so bad for him there. He got the lightest sentence of anyone arrested, he got his own cell because everyone else refused to bunk with him out of respect, and every day his clothes were neatly pressed and laid out on his bed by members of the Hell's Angels. He was out in less than two years. But in the short time that both Vito and Niccolo were behind bars, other criminal organizations sensed opportunity. The Andrangheta, the Calabrian mafia that was especially powerful in Ontario, wanted a piece of the action. So did Reynold Desjardins, who had once been Vito's closest friend and had been arrested with him in the 70s for arson. And the new head of the Bonanno family, Sal the Ironworker Montagna, wanted to turn Montreal once again into a fiefdom of the Bonannos. If they worked together, they'd be able to control the port of Montreal, the key to the empire, without the Rizzutos. And all of a sudden, members of the Rizzuto Mafia started to die. Mob hits, arsons, and attempted murders became commonplace. And they started to do the unthinkable. They went after Vito Rizzuto's family. Vito's son, Nick Jr., had tried to take over the operation while his father and grandfather were in prison. I don't think he had the stamp of his father in the sense the same mold. He grew up, how do I say the term, spoiled in French. We sit down wet and cotton. It's not the same stamps, not the same mold from the old days. And his downfall was getting involved in construction, which he knew very little of, getting to trust people. Vito was in a Colorado prison cell when he heard the news. It was three days after Christmas in 2009. 
A shocking murder this afternoon in Montreal. Nick Rizzuto Jr. was shot by a man who walked right up to him on a busy street. Rizzuto has family ties to the most powerful mafia leaders in Canada, and that could mean a bloody war is about to begin in the world of organized crime. His oldest son, Nick Jr., had been murdered in broad daylight on a Montreal street. Nick Jr. had wanted the family to shift away from the grubbier aspects of crime and move things in a more white-collar direction. He wanted to go to legit, and legitimate is a big term here. When I say legit, he wanted to invest. He wanted to do that next level up, the corporate mafia. But now he was dead, and Vito was too far away to do anything. He refused to go to the funeral, knowing that he too would be a potential target. The news would only get worse for Vito. Paolo Renda was Vito's consigliere and one of his most important confidants. He was also married to Vito's sister. A few months after Nick Jr.'s murder, Renda was pulled over by sirens. He didn't realize until it was too late that it wasn't a police car. Renda was taken and disappeared. To this day, his body has never been found. Disappearing someone was one of the most insulting and cruel ways to get rid of a mafiosa. And for the Rizzutos, the insults weren't over. On the evening of November 10th, Niccolo Rizzuto was at his home in Montreal. It was already plenty dark outside as he talked with his wife and daughter in the kitchen. At exactly 5.40pm, a bullet tore through Niccolo's jaw and ended up slicing his aorta. Police surround the Montreal home of an alleged mafia patriarch. A man, an uh, 86-year-old man, was shot at least once. They say a lone gunman hid in the woods outside the house. 86-year-old Niccolo Rizzuto was pronounced dead soon after arriving at a hospital. Just like the murder of Rocco Violi decades earlier, the murder that Niccolo is thought to have ordered, Niccolo Rizzuto was killed with a hunting rifle. Here's Peter Edwards again. The type of gun that was used for him, it was kind of the way you'd shoot a deer or it's almost like a hunting one. It was almost disrespectful. With Nick, it was odd because he just he just seemed to be timeless. Like he almost seemed like, you know, Montreal Mountain sort of thing. <laughs> like it was just Nick was always going to be there. When Vito heard the news in prison, he asked, quote, why do they have to go after an old man? You've got a guy shot to death, um, his wife of more than half a century standing beside him. And then Vito hears about this and he can't go. Now he has to step up. By 2012, this was what had become of the Rizzutos, the most important mafia family in Canadian history. Vito was in prison, his son was dead, his brother-in-law disappeared, his father, the patriarch, killed. Dozens of other captains and Rizzuto loyalists had already been picked off in the streets, and money was flowing to his rivals instead. It looked like the reign of Vito Rizzuto had finally come to an ignominious end. In 2012, he was released from prison and returned to Canada. Well, the man known as Montreal's Teflon Don is back in Canada. Vito Rizzuto landed at Pearson Airport after doing time in a U.S. prison in connection with a triple murder. The world Vito was returning to was very different than the one he left. Now 66 years old, no one expected him to return to his former perch atop the criminal food chain. His allies were few, his family dead, many of his crew were still imprisoned after Project Colisee. Other allies had drifted into the orbits of the Desjardins or the Andrangheta. His Hell's Angels contacts were still in prison. Even the Consenza Social Club, the old Rizzuto headquarters, was gone. But even then, a few things started to go Vito's way. 
two of his rivals for the throne began to attack each other. Sal the ironworker Montaigne, the boss of the Bonanno family, put out a hit on Reynald Desjardins, Vito's old collaborator turned bitter rival. It failed, but it placed a permanent wedge between the two, and Reynald would successfully kill the ironworker in 2011. It was, however, a Pyrrhic victory, because Desjardins would be charged with that murder and sentenced to prison. Two of his rivals had eliminated each other. For Vito, it was an opening, however small. Some people thought that when Vito returned, he would quietly retire. But they were wrong. Vito only wanted one thing now. Revenge for his murdered family. They all figured he was going to die or pass away. But he managed to come out of jail and rule. As soon as Vito arrived back in Canada, he started to gather his forces. Some were septuagenarians recently released from prison, others young, unpolished men. These were not the best of the best. But for Vito's purposes, they do. The Canadian Mafia was now in the middle of a civil war. Several mob figures linked to the faction that in Rizzuto's absence tried to take over have been taken out. The latest was just this summer in Toronto. Vito hid out in a condo in downtown Montreal that almost no one knew the location of. But his allies started to be murdered and their businesses firebombed. November 17th, a Rizzuto associate is shot and killed outside his home. A Rizzuto-linked restaurant owner was riddled with bullets on December 8th. Another killing on December 10th, again on the 17th. But the Rizzutos pushed back. Allies of the Desjardins group and the Andrangheta were turning up dead too. No one could tell exactly who was winning, but the body count kept rising. And then Vito had a masterstroke. In his years of imprisonment, a number of lucrative sports books and other businesses had started paying up to the Andrangheta instead of to the Rizzutos. Vito announced that anyone who switched back wouldn't have to pay a dime up to him. It was an unprecedented move. He didn't want their money, just their loyalty. That immediately shifted the scales in Vito's favor. Within half a year, it looked like Vito Rizzuto was once again the most powerful man in organized crime. He got vengeance. He got rid of the people that betrayed him, especially the people that he had trusted or he had spoken to before going to jail. But that balance that had existed before he had gone to prison was done. The Charbonneau Commission was investigating corruption in Quebec, and Vito's name kept coming up. And while his associates wanted to focus on regaining a foothold in the construction business, Vito was solely focused on revenge. There were whispers that Vito, the CEO of Rizzuto Inc., who had once brought wealth and power to all of his associates, was now bad for business. But Vito's campaign of revenge continued unabated. The man believed to have shot Niccolo Rizzuto was killed outside of Toronto. Another man who Vito saw as having betrayed him was gunned down on a Mexican beach. Vito was back to his old lifestyle. He started being seen in public and staying out late drinking. Vito was once again at the top of Montreal's criminal underworld. Like Napoleon, Vito Rizzuto had returned from exile and conquered once again. But his final downfall would be just as swift. One day in December 2013, a little over a year from when he was released from prison, Vito came home from a night on the town and collapsed. He was dead before he reached the hospital.
funeral of reputed mafia boss Vito Rizzuto drew hundreds of people to a Montreal neighborhood today. Family and friends were joined by scores of police officers and just plain curious onlookers. Vito Rizzuto's funeral was held at the same church as his son and his father under a giant fresco of Benito Mussolini. The Rizzuto dynasty had finally come to an end. The official cause of death for Vito Rizzuto was pneumonia caused by lung cancer. But Peter Edwards, he doesn't exactly buy it. I think it's fair to at least hold out the possibility he was poisoned. Vito had been gaining weight the last few months. There were no signs he was sick, and the family chose not to have an autopsy. And it's not like many of the Rizzuto's contemporaries died of natural causes themselves. With Vito's death, the Rizzuto family as we once knew it was over. But that didn't mean that the crime or the killing has stopped. Vito's enemies, the ones he saw as having betrayed him, some of them are still ending up dead. You know, the rumor has it that he's left a list to his sister Maria, Paolo Renda's wife, for a certain amount of people to be eliminated. There's a three, four people that uh, are due. Let's put it that way. With the Rizzutos out of the way, new organized crime groups have risen from the ashes. The Andrangheta is more powerful than ever. The Wolfpack Alliance, made up of young gangsters formerly connected to the Rizzutos, is also trying to muscle their way in. Because in Canada, you have the new mafias coming now, which are, you know, the Italian-based organized crime. Uh, They're the altar boys compared to the ruthless individuals. Even the business itself has changed. It's no longer the drug importing. They're they're brokers, the Indrangheta from Mexico's with the cartels in Colombia. But the major money makers right now are the finance companies and internet gambling, which we have to crack on. The power and success of the Rizzutos is a reminder that Canada continues to be a global hotspot for organized crime. It's a haven for organized crime. And our Canadian economy, I can't put a percentage, but a great part is infiltrated by uh, organized crime. That's your episode of Commons for the week. This episode relied on reporting done by Adrian Humphreys, Lee Lamoth, Paul Cherry, the CBC's Fifth Estate, TVA, and many others. We especially leaned heavily on Peter Edwards and Antonio Nocasso's fantastic book, Bad Blood, The End of Honor, which is also the inspiration for the TV series Bad Blood, which you can watch on City TV or Netflix. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Canadaland Commons, that's C-M-N-S, you can also email me, arshi at canadalandshow.com. This episode is produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. And our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash canadaland. <laughs>